Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Alias Secure AF podcast, the podcast about all things cybersecurity. I'm your host, Teddy Underkoffler. Today I'm joined with Andrew Peters, our digital forensics examiner and security engineer here at Alias. Um, so we're going to talk about digital forensics today, a little bit about what it is, who needs it, things like that. So Peters, as we call you in the office, since we have like five Andrews, do you want to go ahead and kick it off? Yeah, sure. Um, so basically digital forensics is uh, considered to be the application of computer science to law. Uh, that's the simple definition of it. Okay. But there's so much more that goes into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so then how, I guess we'll just go ahead and start. How does forensics differ from digital forensics? It really doesn't that much. One of the main principles of forensic science is called a Lacard's exchange principle. It's the principle that whenever somebody visits a crime scene, they take something with them and they leave something behind. And the exact same thing happens in computers as well. Okay. So there's always going to be like a fingerprint on people's computers, essentially. Exactly. Okay. So then who needs for digital forensics? What are some use cases for digital forensics? Uh, the list is uh, goes on and on. Um, mostly criminal investigations, um, civil investigations, and uh, military intelligence as well. And what are some examples of like the like a business case, I guess. Like, what are some cases you've worked, obviously, withholding all the information? Uh, most of the cases I've worked so far are intellectual property theft. Um, a business thinks that an employee is a, maybe stealing company documents, and they, uh, they want to find out what's going on there, see if uh, they need to terminate them or if they need to pursue legal action. So. Okay. Um, let's see. I guess let's get kind of back into, you had mentioned before we actually begin recording this that there are kind of seven steps to digital forensics so if i was to call our office and say i need you to i'm a business i need you to see if there's an insider threat or that someone stole some ip off of a device what what are the next steps what happens so the uh, the first step in the forensic process is going to be search authority so of course if you're a business calling us asking for our services that's that's going to be our search authority but if you're law enforcement this is going to be a search warrant or a subpoena or consent from an individual but if you work on the the civil side of things like we do normally uh, we're going to get our search authority from either consent or a court order and so that just means that they're consenting for you to search through the entire device and try and find something specific right exactly okay and then what comes after that so after you have proper search authority the next big thing is chain of custody um, if you can't keep track of where the evidence was at all times, um, it's not going to be allowed to be used in court. Same thing with search authority. So then what is a chain of custody? How do you keep track of it? So a chain of custody is a document that basically keeps track of where the evidence is and who's in possession of it from the time it's collected to the time it's the case is closed. Okay. And you basically, I guess, just like write it down on a piece of paper. Like if I had my computer and I gave it to you, then from that point you would hold it on for yourself or if you gave it to someone else maybe like the court or something you just have to kind of make sure it was signed off and kept track of throughout the entire process right yeah uh, most chain of custody forms are on a a sheet of paper where you sign it to an individual but um, some laboratories even have a, a digital system where you can scan barcodes oh okay that's cool so then what's the next step after i've given you my device we've signed over chain of custody then what the next step is going to be actually imaging um, the device. So normally with forensic science, it's always better to work with an original instead of a copy, but with digital forensics, it's kind of the opposite. Um, you want to make sure you don't delete or destroy any data that's on the drive. So we're going to make a forensic image of it or a, a bitstream copy. 
um, where we basically copy the entire hard drive and we use that to do all of our forensic processing on so we don't uh, accidentally destroy the original drive. So then if you accidentally destroy the copy, you can just make another copy of the original. Exactly. Okay. Um, and then you've made a copy. Now what? So next we're going to do something called hash it. So a hash value is basically a, a mathematical algorithm that uh, it creates a, a unique uh, alphanumeric identifier for it. So um, if you even change one single bit on the hard drive, the hash value is going to look completely different. It's kind of like a digital fingerprint. It's basically our way of validating that the evidence is original and valid. Okay. Um, and you can only do that once, I assume? No, you can do that as, uh, as multiple times as you need to. Okay. But it should be the same number every time. Okay, okay. So you have one specific number. Every time you do it, you get the same number? Is that... Am I following You correctly? should if nothing on the device has been changed. Gotcha. But if something has been changed, you will get a different number. Exactly. And then you know it's been changed. Exactly. Okay, okay. And so that's how it kind of holds up in court, so that way they know whether it's been changed with, tampered with, etc. Yes. Okay, okay. And then after that, what's next? So next, we actually want to uh, validate our tools. Um, our forensic tools, uh, most places use like a forensic toolkit or a magnet axiom. But anytime you uh, have a software update uh, or anytime you are going to work a case, you want to validate your tools with a test image. Uh, and this is basically to make sure that your tools are working properly and producing accurate results. Makes sense. You know, you need to make sure your tools are going to do the, what they're supposed to do, right? Exactly. Okay. And so you do it on a different device, validate your tools on something else before the, or do you do it on the copy? Oh, we normally, you would keep a test image specifically for that purpose. Okay. That you would process with the tools and examine just to make sure that the, ideally one that you, you know exactly what's on there. You know what you're supposed to find. You know what you shouldn't find. So you, uh, you test the tools to make sure that the, you're not going to find any artifacts from other cases, as well as making sure that it's finding all the artifacts on your current case. Okay. So then once you validate that the tools are in working order, then I, are you able to start your investigation? Uh, yes. And then tell me about that. What's that so, process like? Uh, the next step is, is going to be quality assurance and repeatability. So you want to make sure that you have everything set up so any other forensic examiner at your organization can immediately come in after you, follow the exact same steps, and get the exact same results. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. It's kind of like a science, right? You know, you have to make sure you can repeat it so that way the results are accurate and correct, right? Exactly. Okay. How long does, like, an investigation typically take? Like, again, like, I brought you my device. I said, hey, I need you to find out if some files have been taken or whatnot. What's, you know, the general time frame for that sort of stuff? Um, it really kind of just depends on the, the nature of the case and if there's any exigent circumstances involved. Uh, for instance, if, if the government believes that they have a credible intel on a possible terror threat, uh, they might uh, seize a device and perform a forensic investigation on it immediately. Um, something in law enforcement or they have a, an unsolved homicide case it might take six months to get around to so then we just i mean you just kind of hold on to the device until then or it just yeah if, uh, if you have a significant backlog of, of devices that need to be uh taken care of like what typically happens in you know state and federal crime labs then it will uh, just be uh, submitted to the evidence locker and kept there until it's needed okay okay i guess that makes sense um so then what happens after the investigation so uh, during and after the investigation, the next step is uh, reporting. So we need to make sure we keep detailed notes on everything we do uh, for the purpose of repeatability and also uh, leading up to the next step is uh, expert witness presentation. 
So we need to make sure that we have a well-documented note so we can properly present that evidence to the jury, especially uh, law enforcement investigators. You know, sometimes it can be uh, several years before that trial actually comes around. So taking good quality notes is how you ensure that you can review those before the trial and make sure that uh, everything you're saying is truthful. Yeah, I mean, if it's going to take a couple of years after you've done the investigation, then when you have to testify, I imagine a strong report with a lot of good notes is critical. Yeah, the, re- the reporting never stops in digital forensics. Gotcha. Um, gosh, it really does take that long for some of those court cases. So you've done the expert witness then, right? You've actually gone to testify in court for some cases, and I know Alias has as well, correct? Yeah, I, I personally haven't, but uh, I accompanied uh, Donovan, our, our CEO. Um, I accompanied him to a, a hearing, uh, but they did not call me to testify. Okay, but you were still there yes. in case they did call to testify. Yeah. Okay, that's very cool. Um, so then I guess what's next after testifying? Is there really anything else left in the pr- process? Um, generally, no, and a lot of times the process might not even go that far. So, for instance, if you have a court case where they're, they're looking for intellectual property theft and you do an examination and you don't find any evidence that, you know, company property was taken from the device, the investigation might end there after a report. Um, so expert witness presentation isn't always needed, but w- when it is needed, you may better make sure you do it right. Okay, yeah. Um, so, and that's essentially the seven steps of digital forensics, right? Yep. Okay, so that's it in a nutshell. And that's kind of, you know, we talked pretty heavily about the individual side. So then what about digital forensics more on like the cybersecurity side? What about, you know, I've been hearing DFIR get thrown around. We use digital forensics in incident response, correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what DFIR stands for. And uh, that's essentially what most incident response is. Uh, A company gets ransomware. A big part of the investigation is or a big part of the response is figuring out how it happened. You want to figure out how it happened, uh, not only so you can, you know, mitigate the issue and make sure it doesn't happen again, but if it's applicable, you also want to make sure that you have evidence to take somebody to court if you need to. And so you kind of use those seven steps, even in an incident response situation then. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So it's just kind of like a whole re like a repeatability process where regardless of the situation, you're able to fall back on those steps and know, I will do these in this order and then whatever the outcome may be. Exactly. Of. Okay. Yeah. Every, uh, every digital forensics laboratory should have a, a set of standard operating procedures mm-hmm. and those seven steps are pretty much the, the, the main operating procedures that, that all forensic labs kind of base theirs off of. Those are the seven required steps that everyone should be taking. Okay. Okay. Um, now I kind of, you know, want to talk a little bit about you how did you get into digital forensics right i mean did you take classes for it did you get certifications for it yeah absolutely so um i decided when i was in high school that i wanted to pursue digital forensics in college so uh, i started going to the the university of central oklahoma uh, it's uh, the best forensic school in the entire nation um, their uh staff has uh, insane amount of combined years experience working for the FBI and they were all uh, you know they they had groundbreaking technologies they were the leader of their field um, the uh, the director of the department Dr. Adams um, he was the first FBI agent to testify using DNA evidence in court oh wow and he also used to be the head of the entire FBI crime lab uh, in Quantico um, and they have a, a bunch of other professors there that 
once again, top of their field, uh, had uh, groundbreaking discoveries in forensic science. So uh, it's local. Um, so decided I wanted to go to UCO, um, started studying digital forensics, and uh, I got an internship at Alias, and here I am. And it was happily ever after, right? <laughs> um, let's see. Is there anything else I didn't ask you about digital forensics you wish you wanted to touch on? There is so much more to talk about, but mm. uh, we could sit here forever and talk about it. But at least so. on yeah, at least on the fundamentals, right? The basic, what is digital forensics? Do you feel like we kind of covered that well enough? Yeah, I, th- I think so. Once again, it's, it's the application of computer science to law in a nutshell. Awesome. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining me on the episode. Yeah, thanks for having me.